Awesome, awesome. A little chillier out this morning, even though it was like almost 80 a few days ago. I don't know what's going on. We'll just pray and trust the Lord throughout all of it. Hey, if you're new here, if you're a visitor, we welcome you. We hope that uh, you are blessed by your time with us today. We as a church family are towards the end of something that we're calling the year of the Bible, where we're taking January to December to go Genesis through Revelation, really highlighting and following the one story that is the Bible, that the Bible is not a bunch of random isolated stories that are disconnected from each other to teach us some random moral lessons, that it is one story that is leading up to the revelation of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross, and then explaining what that was, and then further looking forward to what he will do yet, which is to come back for his bride, the church. We, in our reading plan from that, right now, over the last two weeks, are in the book of Romans. And right now, this last week, we have in our reading plan read Romans 8 through Romans 16. And let me just say this, Romans 8, in and of itself, could take a month to faithfully teach, actually maybe even two months. In fact, there are many preachers who would say that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the greatest book. There are many preachers who have said that Romans 8 is the most important chapter or the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. Many have said that it is one of the greatest treasures in all of the Bible. So when I'm looking at our notes and our reading plan and we're going Romans 8 through 16 and I'm going, there is no way I can teach 8 through 16 in one weekend sermon. I'm going to try to teach Romans 8 in one weekend sermon and we might just get to Romans 8 1. Who knows? We'll see. Having said that, I want to ask you really quick, how many of you, whether it's a television show or a movie, are are a person who will raise your hand and say, I really love legal dramas? Like the good old TV shows with movies with perhaps it's for you. So my parents are in visiting this weekend, and I remember growing up watching my mom watch Matlock. She loved Matlock and another show. Yeah, that's right. All right. She also, uh, she loved to watch Murder, She Wrote with the typewriter and all that kind of stuff. Now let's fast forward. Maybe for you, you are really into Law and Order. Dun, dun, dun. And you enjoy that scene, that dynamic, or if you're going to go to the movies and maybe the greatest or the most famous legal type movie courtroom scene might be A Few Good Men where Colonel Jessup is saying, you can't handle the truth. We've all heard that line, right? What is it about these dramas, whether television or movie, these legal dramas that are so captivating? There's all sorts of dynamics and all sorts of things that make them really interesting. It's the legal process in and of itself. It is the characters, meaning the roles of the judge, the jury, the defense, the prosecution. It's the cases. It's the the evidence, the arguments, the cross-examination, all that goes into determining if a party is guilty or not guilty. So here's the fun part. I got my jury summons. And throughout the month of November, I'm on call. And so that put me in the courtroom last week. And it's funny, I've watched the movies, I've watched the TV shows. But when you go into the real courtroom and you see the real judge and the real defense and the real prosecution and you see the process of them selecting jury and everything that goes into it, it's like there's a different weight from me sitting there with popcorn. It's like, this is real. This is heavy. And there are implications on someone's life with what's about to unfold. And I was in the jury selection process last week, and they were saying this case is going to unfold over the next three days, and I'll leave all the details out and all that kind of stuff. But it was so interesting watching it unfold, and I can tell you, in another life, I probably would have really loved being a lawyer but I had a lot of fun with it. I like to argue and debate. And so seeing all of this, it's just going, man, there's a different gravity. Why? Because this isn't just for entertainment. There are implications on someone's life. There was a defendant. 
of an alleged crime. There was an alleged victim. And they're bringing their evidence forward. And then there's all the debate back and forth. Knowing that whatever the judge and jury decide will determine the outcome of a certain individual or a couple individuals' lives, potentially for the rest of their lives. That's why when we watch those shows, they're so captivating. We get drawn into them. This is not just the theater. It's not just the drama of it. But the fact that there are consequences and ramifications. There's the judge, the expert of the law, who's been given authority from the state to make rulings over people's lives based upon the law. There's the defendant, the person who is being charged with the violation of the law. Their defense, the counsel or lawyer, whose job is to advocate for the defendant. There's the prosecution, the party who is accusing the defendant of violating the law. There's the jury, the group of hopefully unbiased. They have the process to try and make sure the, the jury's built of unbiased individuals who are randomly selected to listen to the evidence and hear the laws explained and deliberate and then conclude verdicts. There's the bailiff, the clerk, the court reporter, the process, all of it. If you're not in the seat of defense, it's really fascinating. But if you're in the seat of defense, fascination is not something you're considering or feeling. It's a completely different feeling. And I remember seeing the individual up there just imagining what it must feel like to be sitting in that chair, trusting your counsel, and concerned about what everyone's going to hear, what everyone's going to think, how they're going to weigh all the different evidences that are presented. In the book of Romans, there are a few terms that you hear a lot. Some of those terms that you hear a lot in the book of Romans are righteous or unrighteous or righteousness or unrighteousness. You hear law a lot. You hear justified a lot. You hear condemned. These are legal terms that are littered all throughout the book of Romans. I want to take just a second before we go any further to talk about those couple of phrases being righteousness and justified because the implications of how much they're in the book of Romans and making sure we have a, a good picture of what those words mean. Righteousness, uh, for someone to be righteous, is not like the 80s of like righteous. It, it does not just mean awesome. <laughs> in fact, contrary, righteous means to be in right standing with, okay? If I walked up to you today and I slapped you in the face, it would be fair to say between you and me, we are not all right. And so there is offense between you and me. Whether you deserved it or not, something's wrong between us. How many times have you had a conversation or seen some other people who are talking who are had, had conflict that then are saying to one another after said conflict, we good? That, that question of, are we good, is the, the, the heartbeat of this concept of righteousness. It is by which we are stepping back, looking to God, the judge, who actually doesn't need evidence because he sees everything, who isn't sitting here listening going, what could the motive be? Because he sees the motive, which is terrifying. And we're looking at this God who has seen all and we're going, are we good? Am I righteous? Am I justified before you? These are terms that are prevalent in the book of Romans that have implications on basically, are we good? When we're talking about our relationship with the eternal judge of the universe who is holy and righteous and just. And there are people in the courtroom who are longing for justice. And there are people in the courtroom who may be hoping that justice isn't found out because they know what they did. As we move forward into the book of Romans, go ahead and turn to chapter 7. 
I'll recap just really briefly for time's sake and to help all of us be on the same page. Remember last week we were in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 we, and 4 a little bit. And we read some verses in there where we see the righteousness of God. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, remember, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news about Jesus Christ. He said, for it is the power of God for salvation. And then he says, in it, meaning in that good news about Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he goes on to talk about God's wrath. No, we don't like to talk about that today, but it's there and it's true and we need to see it. In chapter one, he talked about God's wrath on unrighteousness, giving a picture that, that where unrighteousness exists and in whom unrighteousness exists, God has wrath stored up, waiting to be poured out. And then he goes on to say, talk about the unrighteousness of the Gentiles, the non-Jews who follow the sinful desires of their hearts. And then he makes it interesting by also talking about the unrighteousness of the Jews, the people who thought that they were right with God because they were born from father Abraham and God had given them the law. And he takes those two to then get into chapter three where he talks about the unrighteousness of all peoples. You remember from chapter three, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one does good. No one seeks after God. The good news is that the book does not stop there. Paul's letter continues on. And in chapters three and four, we start hearing about and learning about the saving righteousness of God that is available to all people. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter five goes on to tell us about the righteousness of God that was purchased by Christ's victory over Adam's sin. Chapter five tells us that Adam sinned and sin entered the world and death by sin. And then he starts contrasting Jesus against Adam. Adam, the first Adam, if you will, who invited sin and death into this world by his rebellion and disobedience against God. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, coming then and not failing the test like Adam did, but passing the test. Who being tempted with every sin that we are tempted with, Scripture teaches us, Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, did not take the fruit, did not take and partake of sin, but instead resisted Satan, resisted temptation, and lived a perfect life, righteous, right with the Father, without sin. And that because of that, when he laid his life down on the cross, he paid in our place for all of our sin, bearing the weight of our punishment upon his body on the cross. What amazing grace God has given us in his son, Jesus Christ. He goes on in chapter five to even say, and, and just talking about how wonderful the grace of God is and that while we were still sinners, not while we were getting our act together, not while we were cleaning ourselves up, not while we gave him any reason to want us because of his goodness, his grace, his love and mercy. He looked at us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on to say, wherever sin abounded, meaning wherever there was a bunch of sin, the grace of God abounded all the more. And Paul, recognizing what he's saying, recognizing how it could be taken and spun and skewed and misunderstood he starts asking these rhetorical questions, saying, well, if, if our great sin makes the grace of God even greater, then why not just live it up so that the grace of God could be even greater every time? And Paul answers that rhetoric with, well, no. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? He says the same way that Christ was crucified and buried and raised from the dead. He said, when you were baptized, that was a symbol of you dying and being buried with Christ, coming up out of the water, symbolic of you being raised to new life the same way as Jesus Christ. So you must see yourself as dead to sin. He said, consider yourselves dead to sin in Romans chapter 6. He's teaching us that, that the grace of God, which forgives our sins, pardons our sins, 
is not a license to sin, but a freedom from sin. He's saying if you have received the Spirit of God by faith in Jesus Christ, then it is not a just, well, I can keep on living in sin because there's grace. He's saying, no, if you have received the Spirit of God, you must be dead to sin and resist the flesh. The interesting thing is that then we turn to Romans chapter 7. Right after Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin, he starts talking about the law of God and saying God's law is good because it came from God and it was good judgments. And he goes on to say, and this good law from God awakened in me the evil that was there, this awareness of sin. And he said, when the law told me don't do this, it was like awakening the sin that was inside of me that made me go, ooh, I want that. How many of you guys have ever been at the restaurant where the waitress comes out, sets down the plate and says, it's really hot, don't touch it. Like last week, I was at a restaurant where I ordered chicken pot pie and that crock was in the oven and she brings it out and sets it on the table and she's like, this is really, really, really hot. Don't touch it. What do you think I did? <laughs> I touched it. She told me not to. It didn't matter. I was like, I know. She said, why, why? I was like, I want to see if it's really hot. Like, how hot is hot to her? It was hot. <laughs> but I got calluses from playing the guitar, so it wasn't that bad. So, that's what Paul is saying. The law of God did. And that God gave the law, saying, thou shalt not and thou shall. And as reading and hearing those commands from God, which are good and perfect and righteous and just, the heart that is not good and perfect and righteous and just, hears those things and the desire for evil is awakened. And Paul in Romans 7, right after saying, consider yourselves dead to sin, then goes on this diatribe talking about his own wrestles and struggles with sin, venting about, oh man, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And he goes on to say, calling himself this wretched man, saying this wretch that I am. In fact, let's go there really quick. Let's, let's turn to Romans chapter 7. We're going to read, starting in verse 21. He said, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. This is the verse that inspired, that saved a wretch like me. Paul the apostle, Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul who was given the gospel to the Gentiles, saying, what a wretched man that I am. Reading on, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There are many who have argued that Romans chapter seven, Paul talking about his war with sin and with flesh and even indwelling sin is what he says in some of those verses. There are those who have argued that he's talking about his former state before being saved, before being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and I can hear those arguments. The challenge of the problem is that there in the Greek language is grammar and functional words that he could have and would have used if that's what he were saying. If he were trying to say, I used to do those things that I don't want to do, and I used to not do those things I wanted to do, and I used to be like that, it's the equivalent of, for me, I haven't had a soda since August. I'm done with soda. I quit it. Uh, it, was, it's, it was a bad habit for me, and so I cut it out. Notice, I'm not here saying 
today, um, you know, I, I drink soda like I don't want to and back and forth. I'd refer to that story when I said in August I quit drinking soda and I don't drink it anymore. There are ways in which Paul could have and would have. In fact, those types of articulations are very present in tons of of, uh, literature from Paul's day. And so the argument that he's saying from his former state, you can make that argument. And of course, all of us are responsible for our own convictions and our own belief. And you shouldn't believe something just because I say it. When you read this in context... And when you read what he's saying and the verbs that he's using and, and the grammar and the syntax there, I, I, I take away what he's written, which is a current struggle. And I want to point out one more reason why. If you go that last verse I read in 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. As we go into Romans 8, you're about to see a contrast of a war of two forces pitted against each other, the flesh and the spirit. As we're about to go to Romans 8, I want you to pay attention to the contrast of these two things, because Paul is not trying to say that we no longer struggle or no longer wrestle. And I think Paul, as he's writing to the Romans in Romans 6, what's Romans 6 to us, he's saying, hey, you must consider yourself dead to sin. And we should, on one hand, consider ourselves dead to sin, that when sin comes to tempt us, when we have desires for evil things, when our flesh is longing for sin and or evil, one and the same, we must look at it and go, no, I'm dead to that stuff. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life that I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 2. And so we look at sin and we go, no, I'm dead to that. But we at the same time live in the tension where we don't throw away, where we just deny that there is still a war with our flesh. Because to deny that is to put your guard down to it. And not recognize that these two forces are at battle, at war, constantly. And if you don't think that the one is still there, you have no guard up against it, and it's going to sneak up on you one day when you're not expecting it. It'll come in in subtle ways. Like how easy it is to be having a conversation and just slip into gossip. Like how easy it is to be amongst friends or peers and see people who have other things that you don't have and so easily slip into discontentment or envy or jealousy or bitterness. Why do they and I can't? God, why would you them and not me? It's so easy to slip into those things because we feel like we're not doing things or participating in things that are worthy of the courtroom. It's small, it's subtle. And we must be aware, Paul's going to make the case here, from Romans 7 into Romans 8, that there are two forces at war. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Here it is. Here's the gospel. After after venting about the wretched man that he is, who would save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He goes on to say this, number eight, or eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I could just sit here for the rest of the day And just preach on and rant on and repeat over and over. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it would be a beautiful, wonderful sermon. Not because I crafted it. Not because I articulated it well. But because that statement in and of itself is liberating. Because I don't know about you guys. I read Romans 7. After Romans 6, and I'm going, yeah, I need to consider myself dead to sin. And at the same time, I feel this tug of war going on internally. And I have felt the frustrations of, of, of what a wretched man I am. And then getting to the liberty of there is therefore now no 
condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, Revelation chapter 12 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. If we go back to the courtroom, and if we are the defendant, if we are the defense, sitting over there with accusations being lobbied against us, if Satan comes to us with the accusations of the ways in which we did not do our part, if Romans 7 is coming out, the things that I wanted to do that I didn't do, and the things that I didn't want to do that I did, these sins, this wrestle with flesh that sin is still indwelling in my flesh, Satan comes as the accuser to say, ah, you did this and this and this. Your honor, you saw. You know they're guilty. And he goes and takes his seat. No further questions. In our defense, Jesus Christ approaches the stand. And he says, your honor, I've heard all the arguments, you've heard them. You know the law, you wrote it. But if I can hold up exhibit A, the evidence that the accuser was talking about, if you'll notice, your honor, it's white as snow. It is clean. I don't know what this man is talking about, all these things that were being lobbied against this defendant. I already paid for those. You know I already served the punishment for that. And because of that, you know, Father, judge, this individual is not guilty. And I imagine you can see from the theater, the drama, the TV, these courtroom scenes where someone is being accused. And the gavel comes down, not guilty. <sighs> Friends, there is no more beautiful, no more freeing, no more liberating, no more joy-giving, no more peace-giving concept than the fact that as you stand before the judge who sees everything you have ever done and has seen every motive in your heart, right and wrong, that judge who must judge justly looks upon his son and sees his righteousness, his perfection, and pardons us and says, not guilty. One of my favorite old hymns is a song called Before the Throne of God. It says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. How do you plea, guilty or not guilty? It says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest, my defense, whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands before the judge, no tongue can bid me thence depart, meaning no tongue can say guilty, no tongue can say get out, because my defense is righteous and holy and perfect. It goes on, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just, that judge, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen. My friends, do you feel the freedom and the beauty and the wonder, the awe, the majesty, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And imagining the feeling of the person sitting at the defense desk, knowing got my defendant here trying to help me out, but really I know what I did. And for us to know from Hebrews, it tells us that, that all things are naked before God's eyes. There's nothing hidden from him. That all of us are aware, and not only our own awareness, but we have an accuser. 
with a ministry of condemnation coming to us saying, God knows what you did. He couldn't love you. There's no way a God who's seen everything that you've done. There's no way a God who not only knows what you've done, but knows why. Even the good things that you've done, he knows why you really did them. That when we've had bad motives in our heart for the good things, he's seen that. Yet at the same time, he looks on him, Jesus Christ, sinless, guiltless, perfect, as our substitute and pardons us. That is good news, amen? Let's continue reading in Romans 8. We'll start over there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning those who have placed their faith in him. One of the things I want to point out here is the difference between positional righteousness and functional righteousness. If you are in Christ, meaning you have confessed your sin, repented, and placed your faith in Jesus Christ to save you before the judge, then you are standing in Christ. God the Father looks on him and pardons you. If you are in Christ, then you are forgiven. Positionally, you are before God, clean, perfect, spotless, without flaw, without blemish. And although Romans 7 might show some functional unrighteousness in our lives, even people who, who disagree over the interpretations of Romans chapter 7, none of them, at least respectably, argue that that doesn't mean, or that means that you would, should not struggle with sin anymore. That struggle with sin is real. Hashtag the struggle is real. We've all felt it. We all feel it. And I think it is wise to be aware of it and acknowledge it as Paul did in Romans 7 so that we can walk out Romans 8. Let's continue. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. What is Paul saying right there? He's saying you had the good law from God, commanding you what to do, commanding you what not to do, and the law was good. The problem or the weakness of the law is that, that it did not give you the power to obey. Going on, for the law, or for God did, or for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin. I want to point out there the likeness of sinful flesh, not as sinful flesh. Jesus Christ never had an ounce of sin in him at all. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See the contrast there? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Well, how do you know? He says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who has raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death 
the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Do you see the present war, the present struggle? After Paul says, hey, consider yourself dead to sin. And then he goes on to say, man, I really am at war with sin. Sin that is still indwelling me is what he said. And he said, with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. We're not condemned when we fall, when we stumble, when we sin, because we are positionally in Christ. But he goes on to say that there are two ways to live. You can live in the flesh or you can live in the spirit. And those moments where we slide into present sin are moments where we are resisting the leading of the Holy Spirit and are yielding to the desires of the flesh. Now, when you sin, it doesn't mean you are no longer in Christ, that you've lost your position of righteousness in Christ. You are righteous for one reason, and that is because you have faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. You are not saved by your good works, and if you are in Christ, you are not damned by your bad works. But there are consequences. There are consequences to sin. There are ways in which it brings about bad in our lives, which is why he goes on to say, if you live in the flesh, it leads to death. He's, he's teaching that the ramifications are, are, are legitimate. They're severe. Therefore, live in the spirit. Walk in the spirit. He said, the mind or those who are led by the Spirit think on the things of the Spirit. Those who are led by the flesh think by the things of, or think uh, according to the things of the flesh. This reminds me of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul said, Think on whatsoever things are true and just and noble and lovely and pure and praiseworthy and of a good report. Think on these things. You've heard the old adage, right? You can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from... You haven't heard the old adage. Okay. You can't stop a, a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. Right? You might not be able to control every single random thought that comes to your mind, but you can think about what you are thinking about and going, is my mind dwelling on the things of the spirit or is my mind dwelling on the things of the flesh? And if I allow my mind to stay on the things of the flesh, it will lead me into fleshful desires and therefore lead me into fleshful decisions and therefore lead me into fleshly consequences. Not a loss of salvation, but in legitimate and real consequences. Why is it that God doesn't want us to sin? Is it because he's some mean grouch sitting up on his throne in the clouds with his white hair and white beard going, have no fun? No, it's because God knows that sin will destroy. You know that's true. You've seen it in your life. You've seen the way that your sinful decisions have brought destruction in various ways and forms and functions and levels in your life. God hates sin because he loves us. And he cares about us. And so when he's teaching us from his word here 
that he has changed our hearts. The Old Testament, Ezekiel and Jeremiah saying there's a new covenant coming where God's gonna take out our old, stony, stubborn heart, dead in sin, replace it with the heart of flesh, tender and responsive to God's ways, where we have that heart that desires God, which is why in Romans 7, Paul saying, in my innermost being, I love the law of God. Because God has changed his heart. But we are still here in this sinful, fallen body, and there is still sin present in this flesh, which is why we're at war, which is why we must feed our spirit. If there were two dogs in a fight, two dogs who had been kenneled, and one of them had been fed steak every single day, and the other dog had not been fed for a week, and then those two dogs got out somehow and then got in a fight, which dog wins? It's not a trick question. Which dog wins the fight? The one that's been fed. The one that has been nourished. If you want to win the internal war against sin and against your flesh, you must feed your spirit. How do we do that? Number one, by staying in the word of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His disciples came to him and said, Jesus, aren't you hungry? And he says, I have bread you don't know about. And they're like, did somebody give him bread? I didn't give him bread. Did you give him bread? He's like, guys, no, no, no. My, my bread is to do the will of him who sent me. See, we feed our spirit by consuming the word of God. We feed our spirits by spending time with our Father in prayer. We feed our spirit by, by meditating on the things of God. We feed our spirit by having conversation with the body of Christ, by spurring one another on to love and to good works. We feed our spirit by gathering to worship together. We listen to Hebrews where it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some. We take this seriously. Why? Because it is one of the many things that is necessary for the diet of our spirit. And if you starve your spirit, you will be ruled by your flesh. It's that simple. And you can look at the times in your life after being saved by the grace of God, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the times in which you are more prone to sin are the times in which you're not feeding your spirit. And your flesh is going to rise up and your flesh is going to start to take over. Why is fasting so spiritually powerful? The concept of, flat, of fasting, you're sitting here saying, body, I know you want food and I am choosing to tell my body no. Putting your body in its place and instead spending that time feeding your spirit. My body's screaming at me, eat food, dummy. And I'm saying, No. I will be okay, I'm gonna feed my spirit instead. And I'm telling you, if you are struggling between the flesh and the spirit, one of the very best things you can do for yourself is fast. That active practice of resisting and denying the flesh and feeding your spirit and watch the way that delight in God, love for his word, love for his presence, love for time in prayer, a delight in him, watch how that gets stirred up. We all know the things that stir our affections for the Lord. Avail yourself to those things. We also know the things that draw us away from the Lord. Slam the door shut on those things. Sometimes we leave the door open. It's just going, no, I'm not gonna do that. Listen, if you struggle with alcohol, don't go to the bar. If you struggle with different things in your life, slam the door shut. Don't give place to the enemy. Don't give room to your flesh. If you know what your weakness is and you do, then run away from it, flee from it, and run to the Lord and feed your spirit. Amen. In this chapter of Romans 8, Paul teaches in one chapter something that is present in the entire book. The concepts of justification, sanctification, and glorification. Fancy Bible words, right? We've already talked a little bit about justification. That is when the gavel comes down 
And the judge looks at the evidence and says, not guilty. If you are in Christ, meaning you've placed faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, that moment that you confessed your sin, repented, and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were called justified before God. Not guilty, innocent. The slate has been wiped clean. You're justified. You are positionally in Christ. But then after that, what we've been reading about this fight between the spirit and the flesh is the ongoing process of sanctification for the rest of our lives. It makes me think of Philippians 1.6 where Paul said, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning until Christ comes back or until you die, whichever comes first. As long as you're still alive in Christ, living this life, there is growing to do. There is growing to be done. You can go to John chapter 15 and read about abiding in Christ, staying connected to that vine. And part of that process is pruning where the vine dresser, the father, trims things out of our life, this growth process of walking in the spirit and resisting the flesh. There is justification, which is we are made right with God. There is sanctification, which is God growing us and maturing us and pruning us and making us grow more mature in our faith where we are more and more being transformed into the image of Christ until the perfect day, which is where we see glorification. Where we had just left off in verse 17, where he says, and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Continuing on in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Talking about, he, he's saying, when you get to heaven, when you stand face to face before God and you hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your reward and you behold the glory of God in such a way you will look back at the most severe and difficult suffering moments of your life and like Paul to the Corinthians, you will say that was light and momentary affliction. That was nothing. And it doesn't feel like nothing now when we're in it. But he's saying there's coming a day when you will be so captivated by the presence of God in a way that our little minds cannot even comprehend. That when we are there, every single moment of suffering and difficulty in this life, we will go, it was worth it, and it was light, and it was momentary, and look at God. And you will not care about anything else. You won't care about, whoa, but I'm not married here anymore. You won't care. You won't care about anything because you're going to be looking at God. And you're going to fall on your face. And you're going to want to take the crown of reward off of your head and throw it at Jesus' feet. Because you recognize that crown, that reward given to you, as valuable and as beautiful and as wonderful as it is, finds its right place at his feet. Because he's that glorious. And when you recognize all the evidence that's been stacking up your whole life, that the judge has seen all of it, and you see him go, not guilty, you will weep. You will be elated. You will be so filled with joy in a way that we can't even imagine. And this, my friends, is the hope that we long for today in our suffering, in our challenges, in our war with sin. And I want to read the rest of Romans 8, but you guys got kids in there, so I'm going to jump ahead to the end. I'm going to jump ahead to the very end of Romans 8, where he says in verse 31, I love this, this response that Paul brings. Sorry for yelling. <laughs> verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the same guy who was going through all sorts of stuff, and he's saying, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
who shall bring a charge against God's elect. Who's going to come and say guilty? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's interposing on our behalf right now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. And all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, what, what beautiful truth. Lord, maybe we sit here and on wonder not not because I said the right things. God, because of what you have done and revealed in your word, what you have accomplished, what you are doing for us right now, Jesus, thank you. You're interceding for us right now. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You're praying for us right now. Lord, I ask that you would save. If there are any today who do not know you, Lord, I ask you open their eyes. Let them see their need for Jesus. Let them repent of their sin and place their faith in you for their justification. Lord, for those of us who do know you, I ask that by your spirit you would lead us, woo us, draw us, guide us, and that you would spur us to feed our spirit so that we can be led by your spirit and resist flesh, resist sin. And God, give us Give us a vision, a view of the most wonderful, beautiful day that we will ever experience, which is the day we will see you face to face. Let that hope be the anchor of our souls. The thing we long for more than anything. In Jesus' name, amen.